You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is Daniel Horowitz back in the house on September 12th, Wednesday afternoon. And this is indeed the conservative conscience doing the job that other conservative media or frankly any media just will not do. Um, We had our podcast obviously earlier this week because I was out for the Jewish New Year and we're now back in the saddle, had some really good feedback on the judiciary stuff. But frankly, we did a lot on it for a week. We're certainly going to return to it as you well know, but I want to move on to a different topic for today. Although, believe me, the courts always tie in to everything bad going on in this country. You know, um... If you want to tie in the courts, 9-11, or at least the commemoration of 9-11, the border crisis, and the opioid crisis, all in the news today, well, they all tie in through the border. Today we're going to have a special guest on from our buddies at Center for Immigration Studies on the threat of Middle Easterners pouring over our border and how we still haven't solved the problem. 17 years after 9-11. Obviously, I was out yesterday, couldn't do our typical show commemorating the anniversary. It's shocking, you know, especially someone my age. You know, I still consider myself pretty young. Um, You know, I was still in high school when 9-11 happened, and it just shocks me how roughly half my life has gone by since 9-11 And in many ways, security-wise, we're worse off than we ever were. And our political class still hasn't learned the lessons because, frankly, we never did. There's nothing to remember because we forgot on day one what the lessons were. Now, before we get to the policy implications and then bring in our guest, I do want to just say a word commemorating – um, you know, we talk about the tragedy, but I think it's important. One thing that is important to remember is the divine providence from God. As tragic as the events were, and certainly not to minimize almost 3,000 casualties, it all it shocked me at the time. I know anyone who remembers the day, the first few hours, um, watching the images, hearing the reports, it, it, it was clear to us, oh my gosh, I mean, there's going to be 15, 20, maybe 30,000 casualties. And the amazing thing was that, that, you know, obviously the main event at Ground Zero in New York, you know, less than 3,000 people wound up dying. That was obviously the worst uh, attack we ever had. But, you know, that was all due to the bravery of the first responders and the firefighters in particular. You know, and then other people in the building who sacrificed their lives in a way that almost every last person below the impact level survived and got out in time. And that is just astounding. It's divine providence. It's it's the heroism of those 
few hundred firefighters who lost their lives, but likely saved thousands of others. Um, you know, any less orderly, another hour, and and you could have easily lost so many more. And then sadly, you know, speaking of the firefighters and other first responders, not only did they give their lives going into the building, but, you know, as we learned in the ensuing years, so many died from cancer just from, you know, sifting through the rubble to recover uh, the remains of, of almost all the loved ones that they were able to do. Uh, just, I mean, that, that, that is astounding. Um, and that, that is the type of heroism that is an, on par with just the best of our traditions from our Revolutionary War to World War II that we commemorated last week on, on VJ Day. But what is not on par with our past is our politicians, our political leaders. They are not on par with what we had in World War II. And by the way, I, I apologize for kind of sounding like I have a smoker's voice. You know, whenever the weather changes from the really, you know, humid summer heat to at least more manageable weather, I just automatically get a cold. But you contrast September 11, 2001 to the other date that lived on in infamy, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. It just, it, it's, it's astounding. You know, after the attack, it was a very different type of attack. We understood the nature of it. It was very clear. It was coming from an imperial empire, a government, in this case Japan, that had a military that at that point had surpassed ours, and we were caught sleeping. And we knew as a nation we need to build up our military, fight like the Dickens, and destroy them. And we did so. We did so in less than four years. You know, as I said during VJ Day, there was no political correctness going on back then. There was no equivocating over what needed to be done. It was very clear. You know, you had people, you know, even after all the brave battles and, and the life lost for the first three years of it, but you had the final year where essentially they were defeated and they just wouldn't give up. And it was the problem. And you had visionaries like General Curtis LeMay who orchestrated the burning down of Japan, the firebombing, the carpet bombing, and they understood that that was the only thing that would batter them into submission. And indeed it did. You fast forward. Fast forward 60 years later to the 9-11 attacks. And it was a very different attack. As a nation, we wanted to do the same thing we did after Pearl Harbor. We had that resolve against political correctness. I thought that that would be the end of political correctness, that we would finally do what it takes to secure our nation. But instead, we missed the point. It was 19 people orchestrated by a non-government entity, terror network, that had a really cheap attack. You know, you didn't need all the planes that Japan had in Pearl Harbor with a bunch of box cutters and they did so much damage. And, and it, was, it was so painful because, man, what do you do? So we got to strike out. And 17 years later, 
a person born after 9-11, not someone who is too young to remember it, I'm talking about someone who wasn't even alive, can now join the military and fight in the war that their father fought in before they were born in Afghanistan. We're chasing our tail in a country that has nothing to do with anything. And yet we bring in 20,000 people from Afghanistan every year. We missed the point. 9-11 wasn't a military operation, and it didn't fundamentally require a military response. Now, look, none of us were against immediately just carpet bombing an Arab country just to send a message. But instead, we got ensnared in their own dumpster fires, in their own nation building. While not only leaving our border open, our southern border, our visa system, we doubled and tripled immigration from these very countries. We quadrupled or quintupled the student visa program. Went from like 200,000 a year, where now we have like 1.3 million foreign students. We bring in many of them, possibly up to 200,000 or so, from Islamic countries. We bring in 40, 50, 60,000, depending on the year, from Saudi Arabia alone. Remember, one of the hijackers was a Saudi on a student visa. Two or three others, if you include the 20th hijacker that never made it, was an illegal alien, overstayed their visas. To this day, we don't have visa entry-exit tracking system. What would have been hard for Republicans to come yesterday on the anniversary of 9-11 and have a 9-11 security bill Restoring a promise that even Democrats said they agreed to. Restoring the 9-11 Commission recommendations. What would have been hard? Many of the 25 immigration ideas that I recommended a couple of weeks ago are security-related. What would have been hard? Oh, it was Rosh Hashanah. They couldn't be there. Well, you could do it today. And by the way, that's kind of funny. I mean, I say this as a, as a you know, devout biblical Jew or someone who tries to be... Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that now they're they're off for both days. I mean, very few people in this country keep that. I do. Certainly none of the pagan Jews that are in Congress <laughs> keep that. I mean, they really can't be in session. It's pretty bizarre. They, they look for every excuse to be at a session. But frankly, based on what they are doing, it's better they're not in session. But that's the point. It's astounding. We brought in over 2 million Muslims, or let me rephrase that. We don't know exactly how many, but 2 million from predominantly Muslim countries since 9-11 as LPRs, as immigrants. How many is um, foreign students and other visas? I mean, obviously millions more. Some of them still remain. If only a small percentage ascribed to Sharia, we have a major problem on our hands. We have Europe on our hands. And yet it's a lot more than a small percentage that subscribe to Sharia. You know, one of the things that struck me during 9-11 was that, oh, like where were we attacked? You know, did someone fly planes from the Middle East or something? And, and then I started you know, reading more about it. Oh my gosh, we have these people among us. There were communities 
and imams and mosques that they attended with like-minded individuals. Boston Mosque and, and Northern Virginia. This was nuts. You had Al-Awlaki, who was the famous American, so to speak, immigrant um, terrorist imam who inspired these guys. Later he was killed, I guess, in Yemen. He went overseas. But at the time, a couple weeks before 9-11, he was holding court, recognized by our government as like a religious figure, in the Pentagon before his disciples flew planes into it. Because by then, for about a decade, we were slowly bringing in more people from the Middle East. Now, had we, had we shut it off then, we could have avoided becoming like Europe. But instead, we stepped on the gas pedal, got our guys killed in these endless wars that have nothing to do with us, sectarian tribal wars, nation building, spending trillions of dollars, thousands of lives lost, and then we brought in just a tremendous amount, and particularly from Iraq and Afghanistan. More refugees. We've had major problems. We've had a lot of stories recently of Iraqi refugees where we've had problems from them. And we're still doing this. Only six countries of the 48 predominant Muslim countries were on Trump's list. And for all the talk, even those countries, we've still given out 2,000 Somali Green cards to Somali nationals, which we're going to talk to uh, our guest, guest Todd Benzman in a minute, just in the first quarter of 2018. Now, most of them were adjustments of status, so you could say maybe they're in the pipeline under Obama, but 412 of them were new arrivals. You extrapolate that for a full year, what is that? Like, you know, 1,600. That's a lot. Every year, we have major problems from the Somalis. What are we doing? And speaking of this endless immigration from countries like Somalia, I wanted to bring in today's guest, a new guest to the conservative conscience, Todd Benzman. He's Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, terrific organization. We just had Jessica Vaughn on a couple weeks ago and uh, really love their work there. Now, Todd, he's a guy I met recently through a mutual friend and he was in Texas DPS, Texas Department of Public Safety, their intel division, dealing with the southern border for a number of years. And here's the funny thing. For years before, he was actually a journalist working on Latin American affairs and those type of issues uh, covering that beat for Hearst Papers and Dallas Morning News. So kind of a diverse policy government a journalist background, and I felt what better person to bring on today to kind of give an overview of the threat assessment from from Middle Easterners coming through our front door, through the visas, the back door in our, in our southern border, than Todd, given you know where we are 17 years later. Um, so with no further ado, it is an honor and a privilege to welcome Todd Benzman to the Conservative Conscience for the first time. Hey, Todd, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It must feel un- kind of uncanny to be unshackled. You know, you're in Intel for so many years, you can't say anything, but you were previously a journalist, so you're used to, you know, mouthing off. 
and now you get to mouth off again. Does it feel liberating? It is. It's very liberating. I mean, uh, intelligence uh, practitioners do not have Twitter accounts and write about intelligence matters that uh, we're working with Homeland Security uh, authorities about. So it's definitely uh, liberating and different. uh, And, uh, you know, we'll go from here. We'll see how it works. So we'll we'll link to all your stuff in show notes. And just so our listeners know, I mean, you're the newest addition to CIS and their terrific team. Uh, Since you just literally just left Texas DPS, you could follow him at Benzman Todd, B-N- S-M-A-N Todd on Twitter. Um, You go to CIS's website, you click on the names, and you click on his name, you could see his first 10 articles. And each one really deserves its own podcast. But for today, I wanted to give an overview of this pipeline, this pipeline from the Middle East to Latin America, to Central America, through Mexico, paying the drug cartels to come over, um, and then obviously coming into our country, these SIAs, so-called special interest aliens from terrorist-prone countries. Um, our listeners are very plugged into this issue. We've had experts on on Latin American affairs to discuss the, you know, the Hezbollah Iranian ties to a lot of countries, both diplomatically, even culturally and demographically, in places like Venezuela, um, places like Brazil as a staging operation. So. Just before we get into some of your specific articles, generally speaking, how much does this threat keep you up at night uh, of, of a terrorist group like Hezbollah or, or a Sunni terror group or just a freelance jihadist, which there are many, saying, look, you know, um, as bad as the vetting is on our visa system, which we'll get to later, there still is some vetting. Why don't I just come through the border with a suitcase, a backpack, and set off a bomb? Right. Well, you know, as we know, it's not just Spanish-speaking migrants that are coming over the southwest border, which seems to uh, attract the lion's share of attention and worry and concern. For years, people like me, people who are working in social, uh, I'm sorry, in Homeland Security uh, along the border have worried about migrants coming over the border who speak Arabic and Urdu and Pashtun uh, there Syrians have been reaching the border for years, Yemenis, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Afghanis. Uh, these are not the resettled refugee types. These are people who have no vetting whatsoever, often with no passports or ID. They just simply show up at the border and uh, give a name. It could be you know, Mickey Mouse. It could be their real name. Nobody knows. They're coming with no documents or identification very often. They're being smuggled incredibly long distances to get here, and this is a real threat. And in particular, it is a heightened threat, in my view, uh, given what we've been seeing in Europe the last couple of years, uh, starting with the Paris attacks. Uh, We've had at least – we've got good, credible reporting, New York Times and elsewhere. I'm not going to talk about anything that uh, I might have had access to when I was working in Intel. Uh, just a month ago. But uh, we have good reporting that many of the attackers uh, of Paris and Brussels came in through the migrant trails, uh, used smugglers, boats, foot, train, all the usual methods that are used to uh, travel to the Mexico-U.S. border. And they've been wreaking havoc, as we know, ever since Paris and Brussels over there. So I really think that the threat 
is uh, heightened now more than it was uh, two or three years ago, just because we have the emergence of a brand new phenomenon uh, that I sometimes refer to as the migrant terrorist. Wow. So I do, I do stay up. I do stay up late. I do worry about this. I'm writing about this. And one of my, uh, I guess, objectives now that I'm with CIS is to try to put this issue on the map and try to get attention uh, paid to it before it's too late. Because even the Trump administration, for all that it's been doing, uh, still hasn't quite recognized that there is this other kind of a border threat issue. They haven't really tied together yet in a way that I've seen articulated uh, what's been happening in Europe with uh, what with with the same kind of migration to our own border. That's a really good point. The more I think about it, just going back to 9-11, as we opened the show before I brought you on, uh, just to discuss how we, we, we totally misfired, misidentified, um, misdiagnosed the problem that it wasn't fundamentally, you know, a military problem that needed fundamentally, you know, in general, a military solution like Pearl Harbor, Harbor did. Uh, it, it was an immigration problem. And you said now the threat's even more, and come to think of it, you know, in 2001, you didn't have this global migration, not to the extent that you have today. No. And, you know, I was thinking— It's historic now. Oh, it's historic. And, and I was thinking just, um, you know, you look at Europe, and, and you think, okay, whew, boy, are we happy we have those two big oceans here. You know, yes, we had the problem with refugees, and we have this big debate, and, and Trump, the Trump administration has been reducing the intake— but you f- figure at least refugees, you know, you'd think you could vet you know, somewhat because you take them I and mean, you choose them from their countries, whereas asylum, they just show up. But in fact, they are showing up. Um, you, you wrote in your first article, and we'll link to this in show notes, uh, terrorist infiltration threat at the southwest border. And I, I, I did not know this. On June 24th, 2016, the last day of the, of the last year of the Obama administration – None other than DHS Secretary Jay Johnson, not a notable uh, conservative, sent a three-page memo uh, to t- ten top law enforcement chiefs, you know, throughout the country, um, noting that there is a serious problem with with cross-border movement of special interest aliens. That was Obama administration. That's right. That's right. Because this is really kind of a threat that transcends. Uh, partisan polemics in my in my view and it did during the obama administration in the waning days of the obama administration it happened to um coincide with what was happening in europe the string of attacks by migrant terrorists that that incidentally are going on even to to this day i want to say a week ago an afghani migrant came in over the migrant trail stabbed several american uh tourist students in Amsterdam at an airport. Was uh, that the airport one? It's, it's still happening. Uh, no, I don't think it was the, no, it wasn't at the airport. It was no, I mean, really, I mean, there's so many, uh, it's just a nonstop, uh, you know, cavalcade of reporting about, you know, small scale loan attacks in Europe. Point being is that in 2016 and the last months of the Obama administration, Jay Johnson issued this, directive to all of the top DHS agency chiefs 
that they get together and put together a major initiative to counter special interest alien smuggling. That is a Democrat. That is a sign to me that that there was intelligence information being received uh, by the administration that required that action, that that this is not the space, this is not space that belongs to hard right wing stalwarts or, you know, crazy, this isn't crazy stuff. This is yeah, this is an Alex Jones telling you, you know, oh, there's Middle Easterners coming at the border. This is Jay Johnson saying, um, you know, they, they have a major problem with special interest aliens. It's it's a major threat, and you know, special yeah. interest aliens are what, um, you know, twenty seven or twenty eight or so predominantly Islamic countries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the list of special the, the countries of interest list has changed. Uh, it, it grows and contracts over the years, but for the most part, it's somewhere between anywhere from, you know, 30, 28 to 30 countries and maybe as many as 40 at any given time, depending on what's happening out there in the world with uh, global terrorism trends. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is not the uh, province of, you know, hard right wing conservative politicians uh, there has been, unfortunately, some hyperbole about it out there where, you know, different uh, politicians or electeds had, you know, claimed ISIS was streaming over the border and, you know, none of it turned out to be true. This is just straight up threat, homeland security sure. threat uh, thinking. But, but, that, but uh, I mean, Todd, it's worse than that. In other words, those that are trying to say, oh, there's an ISIS training camp right here, I mean, they're actually downplaying the threat in my mind because you mentioned the Europe paradigm. Isn't it worse now than 9-11 and post-9-11 we're worried about a command and control style attack you know, like from al-Qaeda as they did on 9-11? But that, you know, that's bad enough, but if you have good intel, you could discover it and, and uh, disrupt it. But what concerns me is the freelance jihad where you just have everyone inspired by it. Uh, some of the attacks on Europe maybe were directed, but a lot of them are just – it's almost the primary source. You have primary Islamic radicalism in Europe itself, not just coming from the Middle East. They're, they're now already there, and they just you know commit attacks. So when you have – you know, all the stories of Bangladeshis and Syrians coming through the Laredo sector this fiscal year. Um, you wrote about the story of a Jordanian immigrant in America bringing in um, – who is also a Mexican national, which is very important uh, – bringing in six Yemenis over the Texas border. I mean, this is scary stuff. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, part of the reason why – uh, I think why we have this threat issue, we'll just call it a threat issue, a, matri- a metric of threat, uh, hasn't really registered very much here, very prominently here outside of Homeland Security circles like the ones I just came from, is because we haven't really had an attack from a border crossing migrant yet. Not here. There was one uh, who crossed uh, I wrote about that as well. Yeah, can well. you talk about the Canadian guy? A lot of people forget the media doesn't even talk about it. Yeah, I mean there 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 have been uh, there was that one, but I think that's probably uh, one of the one of the reasons why this uh, as a threat issue has not 
really registered with the American public. My position is that we should always endeavor in Homeland Security to preempt, uh, not react. And I think we're in a, play, in a place now where uh, we should be thinking about preemption more, particularly in light of what's been happening in Europe. And also just the fact that we have had quite a few very well-documented, credible, uh, re- credibly reported instances where extremists from those countries did in fact arrive at the border and were detained and interrogated and deported. So it's very possible, at least in my mind, that some of these individuals uh, were, were in fact plotting and would have uh, committed some sort of uh, sure. uh, violence on once they were on the other side had they not been apprehended and had we not had a program in place to, to uh, process them out. So it's not it's not as though we're not we're not seeing Islamic extremists showing up at the border. We are and we have. And, and, and we, we had very, um, yeah. Brandon Judd on this show, the Border Patrol uh, head of Border Patrol Union, and make the point that look, generally speaking, the interdiction rate of illegals is about fifty percent. So you're talking about what we found, what we successfully apprehended, and that's bad enough. The question looms: What did we, who, or who did we not apprehend? And his point was that you got to believe pound per pound, there's going to be a larger percentage of those dudes that we don't apprehend because they specially pay a tremendous amount, up to thirty thousand, to be smuggled in. So often, and this is really where the general Central American migration and the asylum stuff ties together, because they use that as. Um, a strategy the the smuggler cartels to bring them over right i mean to to distract the border agents with the bogus asylum seekers and then that's when they bring in the high valued individuals um and you know for us to find out god forbid it could take 2 3 4 years who knows what's festering from all that migration we had since the 2014 central american surge well we don't know you're right i mean we don't know what we don't know there are definitely uh i think we could we can say without a whole lot of dispute that individuals have uh, come from those countries over the border and then reached the interior. Maybe they went to New York or San Diego or, you know, maybe here and they stayed in Texas. Uh, but, um, and that, that's, that is, that is true. I, I, I believe that that, that is true. And, and, and we, we do, uh, have reporting that, uh, that some of those individuals later, it could be a year or two later, get you know, apprehended, somewhere like in Chicago or whatever, and they're, they're dealt with that way. But just as large an issue that looms is are the uh, migrants that reach the border without any kind of identification, without, uh, you know, with a, you know, bearing maybe a story or a tale of woe of persecution, and none of it is uh, very easily verifiable. So if you try to figure out, okay, well, is this guy's name Mickey Mouse? or not, and you can't, uh, too bad. They have claimed asylum. And once you claim asylum, you're sort of in the country. You get paroled in. You go through the credible fear interview. I've never thought that an Islamic terrorist coming to the border would just waltz in with a bomb. Uh, That's not the way it happened in Europe. That's not the way it'll happen here if it ever does. I believe that what will happen is what we saw in Europe. They come in, 
They're unidentified. We can't verify them. They claim asylum. They're paroled in pending the outcome of an asylum uh, claim, right? While they're in, as in as they did in Europe, they plot, gather the weapons, and carry out uh, attacks. That that is the model that I think is probably most likely here, and it's all predicated on the fact that we have no idea uh, and no way of learning who they are once they show up at the border and claim asylum. In, in other words, asylum it's not a really, military invasion. It's a self-immolation invasion just like Europe. I think it's so important you keep bringing up Europe. Um, you know, I'm going to have an article out today for the listeners discussing this asylum problem with the likelihood that any hour now the um, CBP is going to put out new numbers showing that the uh, surge of Central Americans increased in August – and, you know, it, it's bad enough, the whole Central American issue, the, the, the poverty they bring in, certainly when you start getting to MS-13 and the drugs, it's pretty bad. Um, but, you know, we usually limit it to that. We think of it in terms of Central Americans. But this bogus asylum problem that we have where anyone could just claim credible fear and we can't even prospectively vet that from a position of strength while they're on their shore and we – decide whether we want to process an application. It's, they're here, and under current, I wouldn't say law, because it's erroneous, as a current practice, as you know, Jessica Vaughn will always talk about with regards to Central Americans, but I think it's true here, that they're not going to show up with a bomb, because like you're saying, well, you know, you, you could not get caught, but you could get caught. This way, they're covered either way. They don't show up with a bomb. Now, if they can get in uninterdicted, that's great. But if they get, uh, you know, interdicted by border patrol, they're like, "Hey, no, 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 I'm, I, I, you know, it's credible fear." And, um, you know, Todd, I've seen this in certain cases from Palestinians, where one guy, his dad, worked for Fatah and claimed, you know, persecution from Hamas. We see this all the time in Iraq, particularly in Baghdad, with the closely divided line between Sunnis and Shias. Where each one is problematic, but each one will, you know, uh, claim claim asylum when we can't disentangle that. I mean that that really scares me both, you know, in terms of bringing in refugees, but certainly once they're already here, um, you know, if you're a Muslim from a Muslim country, it's really very hard to disentangle that as opposed to if you're a Yazidi, if you're an Iranian Jew or whatever, you could easily disentangle it. I mean. So, so don't you think that asylum is really a big linchpin and a big draw to this problem? Asylum, asylum is the Achilles heel of this threat vector. Asylum really is uh, the, 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 the route in. It's not that – the danger isn't that a migrant would show up at the border from one of those countries carrying a bomb. It's that they come in carrying a good story, a good tale. <laughs> That's really what the issue is. If you've got a good enough tale and their smugglers teach them and coach them what to say, uh, any get whatever's trending uh, at that time uh, in terms of getting the credible fear box checked, uh, they'll they'll throw that story and and then get in. Once they're in, they're in. And you know, eventually, uh, two three years go by, and they might have a, a, a merit hearing in front of an, an immigration judge about the whole thing. But, yeah, um, and I, I think, Todd, you don't need to reinvent the mm -hmm. wheel here. I mean, everyone knows this 
with the Central Americans. I mean, everyone's saying this is what you know. Both sides are, are saying, yeah, it takes so long to get a hearing, but now you're just saying extrapolate that to the Middle Easterners. It's no different. Yeah, that's right. And U.S. attorneys are not prosecuting asylum fraud, and because U.S. attorneys are not prosecuting asylum fraud, investigators whose job it is to investigate asylum fraud aren't bothering. Why, why spend months on end on, a, on an asylum fraud case for one guy or two guys and uh, know that, that it's going to be rejected at the U.S. Attorney's Office? So there's really no fraud detection. There's no, very little fraud investigation, asylum fraud investigation. And uh, it's just wide open. The smugglers understand this. You know, I, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about, let's go to some specific cases. Who is Mohammed Abdi Siad, a.k.a. Hassan, the Somali in um, California that is, is now accused, uh, there's now a, a court case he's accused of smuggling in over 50 migrants to Texas-California border over the last number of years. How was he caught? How did he himself come here? And if you could just talk about the pipeline, the vast pipeline from Brazil and how you know, how there's this trail the same way Europe has a trail. Yeah, sure. So this is a brand new uh, ICE Homeland Security Investigations case. Hassan, as far as I can tell, is not yet in U.S. custody. He is the smuggler. He's a Jordanian-born uh, uh, I, I suppose he's a national. We, we still don't know a whole lot about him. He may be Palestinian, but he was born in, uh, or he, he has Jordanian nationality, but he had Mexican permanent residence. So he lived in the Monterey, Mexico area, and he operated as a smuggler. Uh, he is himself Somali, uh, but he operated as a smuggler who was able to uh, facilitate the transport of mostly Somalis, but also some Eritreans, uh, people from East Africa, the Horn of Africa, which is, as we know, riven with uh, terrorist uh, activity and organized terrorist activity, uh, bringing them uh, through uh, oh, oh, by air, uh, mostly to Brazil, and then from Brazil, arranging uh, smuggling legs with a couple of other um, smuggling localized, I would I call them indigenous uh, smuggling outfits that work together with him to bring them up through Panama, uh, Colombia, Panama, right up through the isthmus there, and on up into uh, through Central America to Mexico, and then Mexico right to the Texas and California border. And the reason we know about this particular case, we we very rarely get a glimpse of what the American Homeland Security enterprise is up to with regard to this whole threat issue. They're actually fairly uh, busy, fairly on it, uh, because HSI has had uh, quite a few cases. In fact, I count 22 uh, smuggling prosecutions since 9-11, all of them done by ICE, of individuals who are bringing migrants in from these countries that have terrorist operations, terrorist organizations operating in them. And that's pretty much how he was doing it. Now, the, the big question is, well, the, the, we still don't know where he is, at least not publicly. 
Uh, he is not yet in U.S. custody, but there is a, a an arrest warrant, a probable cause affidavit that's but, but been filed in the, in the federal court system. I don't know if he's in the country yet. This is a very this is just now happening. This case, um, and when, when he comes in, I'll be sure to report when when they when or if they ever they ever get him. Uh, get him under arrest and in U.S. custody. There'll be additional uh, filings, and I'll report on that. The migrant route that is de- described in the court records that are newly available, uh, we've mapped out for our readers on the Center for Immigration Studies website. So if you go there and look under Todd Benzman and scroll down to that, you can. It's an actually we built an interactive map showing exactly how these Somalis were being moved from Africa right up to the Texas and California borders. Wow. I mean, it, that that is really scary because especially knowing that it's not just that it's kind of lawless areas, a lot of lawless countries, you know, easy for them to operate, but that there's downright this connection and base of operations for Hezbollah and others um, in countries such as Brazil and certainly Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, um, Guatemala, and then all the way up into into Mexico. And what scares me is that you have a whole base of operation now where there's this phenomenon that I know others in the intel community called it uh, Muhammad turning into Manuel. And you literally yeah. saw it in that other case with the Jordanian guy, the um, – Moyad uh, Mohammed Al 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 Dairi, uh, the guy who smuggled in the six Yemenis, and you wrote about that as well. And this is all going to be in your uh, uh, articles we link to. Uh, you know, this guy was a Mexican citizen. I mean, yeah, that that's so. That means it's not just that. Okay, we have a problem, you know, with Central Americans coming over, and then we have a problem with you know Middle Easterners com- coming over. It's that it's starting to mix a little bit because over the last generation or two, you, you, you have the Islamization of a lot of areas. Um, some of them are more operational ties. Some of them are ties at a government level like the Boulevard Alliance, you know, where you have the, you know, the bad dudes, the governments like uh, Ecuador and, and Venezuela. And um, you know, I think uh, Paraguay might have just turned over, went backwards again. And you know, some Caribbean countries where they downright have diplomatic ties with Iran, but then you have just culturally, there's, there's, you have a lot more Muslims there, um, in a lot of these countries. So, I mean, isn't Brazil a big gateway now? That don't they initially fly from Turkey, Lebanon, or wherever else to Brazil? Yeah, the two, the two major gateways, I, I call them uh, landing and staging countries, uh, would be Brazil. In Ecuador, it's not that they don't they don't land and stage in some other countries as well, but but in my research, I've seen those two countries figure more frequently than any other country. And uh, part of that is just uh, you know for Ecuador, for example, you know they have a formal state policy uh, where they just did away with uh, visas. Anybody can come in without a visa for any reason. The second that happened, some years ago. Every human smuggler in the world, you know, their eyes lit up and, uh, you know, they started moving people through Ecuador. And then Brazil, because uh, they have very lax visa requirements and, and it's very corrupt. 
very easy to buy off airport inspectors and the rest of that. So uh, very, very um, amenable to human smuggling to just get get folks in from those regions to the Western Hemisphere to start. And then from there, it's pretty easy. You just kind of move people on up. But regarding Somalis, you mentioned Somalis. We're talking about Somalis. They're particularly problematic because if you think about Somalia, uh, there was no government there from 1991 for about 25 years. So anybody born uh, in, in the territory of Somali uh, was born to complete anarchy and an absence of government. Uh, where you have an absence of government, there's nobody handing out birth certificates or printing driver's licenses <laughs> or keeping uh, databases, uh, you know, with criminal histories or anything like that. So, so young men born after 9/11 who are uh, moving through these smuggling routes show up with no possible way at our border, with no possible way whatsoever for us to verify who they are. They say. And all they, they have are. to say is credible fear because, hey, it's a pretty crappy country, you know? And they're in. And, and we've had quite a few uh, instances of Somali problematic uh, Somalis from a, from a terrorism, pers- from an extremism perspective, oh, yeah. which we wrote about yesterday. This, this one didn't come to the border, but it's the same problem. Uh, these so, two so you're, individuals you're getting in to Arizona. our front end. I wanted to talk about this, the front door. So just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much. So that was the back door. This is the front door. Um, I've counted, we've given uh, from 2001 through the first quarter of 2018, 106,013 green cards to Somali nationals. And then probably probably another 50 to 60,000 throughout the 90s because this, this goes back, as you said, like 92, 93 um, tremendous amount we brought in. We already know the U.S. attorney, Andrew Luger from Minnesota, as well as a federal judge from there said, I'm just paraphrasing here, that you know in the Minneapolis community, there, the tentacles are spread wide. There's a major terror recruiting problem. It's not just one or two people. This is a broad problem. So, I mean, even a small percentage of that would be dangerous as heck. So you're telling me tell, – tell us about this Arizona couple – from Somalia that we let in through our front door just to give a flavor of what we're bringing in. Yeah. For more details on that, I mean, you could go to our site. I've got, I've got uh, a recitation and detailing of what the court records uh, tell us about this case, but it, it broke pretty much last month uh, when the FBI uh, and there, there were some court records that, that became unsealed and uh, a court hearing and all the rest where an Arizona couple had come in as refugees. They were resettled uh, after presenting themselves at the American embassy in Beijing, China. Now, how they got to Beijing, China is that they were able to purchase a Somali, a fraudulent Somali passport for him. Uh, She was an Ethiopian, apparently, and uh, they told us they told a story. They came in, like I said, I mean, with the most dangerous of uh, bombs, which is just simply a good story that Al-Shabaab was mean to them, the terrorist organization based in Somalia that's now affiliated with ISIS and uh, still very much a going concern in, in the horn. Um, they came in, they told this tale, uh, and this was in 2013 pre-ban 
pre-Trump uh, travel ban, uh, Obama administration. And they checked the box and sent them to Arizona and they resettled under um, uh, a given name that they provided, right? And then what we've learned now is that they were actually Ethiopian. He was Ethiopian, but uh, he had become a member. Uh, he'd been recruited uh, into Al-Shabaab and had been sent to Mogadishu with his brother. And they fought uh, with, the, with the terrorist organization in Mogadishu. The guy apparently doesn't have hands. I haven't seen photos of this. Oh, my gosh. So, they, so he comes they, in, look, when, my hands were blown off, you know. Right. And they, they, they ask him, how'd, your hand, how'd you lose your hands? And he said, well, it was due to an Al-Shabaab terror attack in June of 2010, which actually happened. There was a terror attack, but uh, later, after the FBI raided their house and found materials and documents uh, about their prior lives, they confessed. And this is in the court records. And what they confessed to was that he actually had uh, blown his own hands off while handling explosives, mishandling explosives for the terrorist organization in Mogadishu. And also uh, that his brother is still a member, that uh, all of his friends and associates were members of Al-Shabaab, that his name was uh, uh, his actual name. He gave his real name. Uh, the reason he claimed he would the the reason he would have claimed he was uh, uh, from Somalia is because, like I was mentioning before, Somalia has absolutely no government records, so there would have been no reason for American officials in the embassy in Beijing or even here to bother calling the Somali government to check anything, right? Contrary, but in contrast, uh, Ethiopia is a long-standing counterterrorism partner of the United States. They've had a government that got record-keeping systems, policing infrastructure, and all the rest. Had he given his real name and somebody called to check on it, they probably would have figured out that he was with Al-Shabaab and we would have blocked him. So he had to come up with a fake name, a fake passport, and a fake nationality. And that's how he was able to game the system and get into Arizona, along with his wife. And I think they have four children as well. The whole family's in Arizona. And this is what we do. And then the minute we let them in, they have a new kid. Oh, you know, we declare them an American citizen. There's nothing we can do. I mean, this is so dangerous. Again, for our listeners, keep that story in mind when you understand that we brought in 106,000 after 9-11. How many more uh, of them are there? Because more than any other country, like you're saying, there's absolutely no records from anything there. You know, there's no government whatsoever to speak of. It's 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 a completely failed state. And yet, you know, maybe this is something you could work on for me because I'm kind of puzzled by this. You know, so to begin with, I, and I know I sent this to you, you know, we brought about 2.2 million from predominantly Islamic countries since 9-11, according to my count. Um, and these are just green cards, not not to mention the many hundreds of thousands of more uh, foreign students. Now, my list is much bigger than the, um, you know, the special interest alien list. This is 47 countries I, I tabulated, um, but a lot of them are kind of smaller. So it's, it's, it's a lot of overlap with SIAs, 2.2 million. And almost all of that is still continuing unabated. For all the talk of this travel ban, it was really only a handful of countries, one of them rightfully being Somalia. And according to the data DHS put out, over 2,000 Somalis were given green cards in the first quarter of this year. Now, 
mo- three quarters of them were adjustment of status, meaning they were already here and then they were given green cards. So you could say maybe they were in the pipeline from the Obama administration, but you know, 400 or so were new arrivals. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very confused about where these people are coming from and why we're letting them in and on what basis we're doing so. Well, and another question to be asked there, and I, I can't claim expertise on that issue, but the obvious question from a Homeland Security perspective is to what extent were those individuals investigated and vetted for ties to terrorism or criminal activity or, I mean, one, one has to presume that they went through some kind of a if they didn't come in through the border where there's no process at all uh, prior to their arrival, if you're getting a green card, that means that you're going through USCIS uh, and, you know, some other processes. And the question is, is, you know, to what extent are they being vetted? And I don't have an answer to that, but it's a, a very fair question. And if any of them can conduct an attack on U.S. soil, that will be the question that gets asked first. It's just you look at the numbers, 2.2 million from these countries, green cards, not to mention the many hundreds of thousands on on student visas, temporary visas. And it's just we haven't learned the lesson of 9-11. It it just – it boggles the mind how we put our boots on their ground and then put their boots on our ground. Um, And that's just one country. You talk about Afghanistan. Uh, Countries like that were bringing them in um, record pace. I count – uh, what do we have here? Um, Nineteen thousand five hundred and seventeen for uh, last year. That's the last calendar year. Um, the, you know, this the first quarter of this fiscal year. We're on pace to bring in, you know, another twenty thousand or so. We brought in eighty six thousand since nine eleven. It, it just it, there's no policy you could put into place to stop self immolation. I, I I just don't understand, and, and I, I guess here's the point I want, I want I want to get your thought on this. You know, a lot of the do-gooders, everything's the Holocaust. You know, they want to just throw everything on you. Well, you're the same people who wouldn't let the Jews in. But you know, the 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 bottom line is, refugee and asylum typically what it was meant for is when you could disentangle a distinct persecuted ethnic or religious minority. It's, it's in statute. Um, you know, because then you could confidently know that, well, the Jews aren't really the Nazis. It's like, you know, it's kind of different. The Yazidis aren't ISIS. It's kind of different. Whereas when you have both with the Central Americans, very homogenous. I mean, you spend time there. Um, say what you want about it, violent place, but, you know, it, it's not like there's one particular persecuted ethnic or religious minority. They're, they're all the same. Um, in these Muslim countries, they're all Muslims. Now, not all Muslims from the Muslim countries are going to be problematic. Not all, you know, Central Americans from Honduras are going to be violent. But we don't have any way of disentangling that. So when you bring in large numbers, tens of thousands from these country uh, countries at a time, isn't it obvious that inevitably you're going to be bringing in the persecutors, as your case illustrated? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the dilemma. I mean, this is what it's all about. It's you know, how do you balance? an American value that on one hand, you know, requires that we provide sanctuary to people who actually were, were persecuted, authentically persecuted, who, who deserve our uh, welcome mat. And at the same time, 
uh, balance it against a, you know, security value, right? So, you know, how do we keep our people safe? This is a public safety issue. And uh, the answer to that is, in my view, intelligence and vetting. Uh, I think that the most humane way to be, the most humane route to solving this dilemma is through vetting, through uh, an enhanced ability to tell the bad guys from the good guys uh, early on. And ultimately, it's always going to be a gamble. But if you let somebody in, are they going to kill somebody or are they going to commit a terrorist act? But but you can you can work the odds to your strongly to your favor if you can just simply find a way to vet them out to figure out. And I think that for those who uh, are earnest about bringing, uh, providing sanctuary to the the deserving, that they should be the first ones on board uh, the National Vetting Center idea from Donald Trump, for example, or, um, you know, some sort of investments that would enhance our ability to to not have to gamble uh, with, you know, high stakes gamble by letting somebody in who we don't know anything about. That, that that's a really good point because you're not doing you're not doing the true you know people that are truly persecuted you're not doing them any favors by bringing their country of origin to America from what they're legitimately escaping. Uh, you know, we, we see this a lot with Central America. I've seen in the media a lot of comments from illegal immigrants themselves saying like you know, I fled this violence. You know, there, were, there were quotes from illegals who had their children killed in Long Island. And, you know, let's say there's a couple – I mean, there really aren't that many legitimate, you know, asylees in Central America. Again, it's homogenous. Um, but let's say someone is um, – or, or let's just say maybe they're not even legally the definition of an asylee, but they are legitimately fleeing violence and, you know, they're not going to be bad. But if you bring in tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands a year, which we do – you bring MS-13 to their, you know, the neighborhoods. I mean, most likely where they live once they come to America is where they're going to operate. And, you know, that's MS-13, but it's the same thing for, for uh, the Middle East. Um, you know, you're well, not going to you know, do bringing, these, you, Yeah. You, you, you talk about bringing in Afghanis, thousands of Afghanis. Uh, I, sus- I don't know about that program specifically, but I suspect that it has something to do with uh, bringing – uh, bringing, providing uh, sanctuary to uh, folks who have, in one way or another, assisted our American yeah. military efforts there, and you know that SIVs, you know, that's a, spe- special immigrant visas, they call them. Yeah, and we did the same thing with the Iraqis. Uh, you know, in the late 2000s, we brought in thousands of Iraqis, and legitimately. Uh, in their home country, if if uh, the bad guys find out that they were helping the Americans, then you know they're they've got a big bullseye on them, right? And they're getting killed. Actually, there's there's body count associated with helping American military effort over there, and so you can definitely argue that you know they're deserving uh, of uh, some of them certainly of coming in here. But again, I go back to the vetting with the Iraqi program. There have been numerous cases. Uh, that we allowed in Iraqis who were Al Qaeda, who there was just an arrest a few weeks ago. Yep. We wrote about it on the Center for Immigration Studies site. Uh, Jessica Vaughn wrote about it, and it's been written about elsewhere. 
Uh, we arrested uh, an Iraqi that we found out had murdered a, a policeman as part of an al-Qaeda cell. He lied about everything and got in through that vetting process. So, so again, it's not that the program is objectionable in itself, in my view, of uh, providing this uh, safe haven for people who helped us. I think that is something that is um, laudable in a way, but that we can we can have reliable vetting processes uh, so that we don't have to take a chance with public safety back in the homeland with the people that we're bringing in. And I have no idea uh, what the vetting situation was like for those Afghanis. I know that the Obama administration had to put a, a stop to the um, entry of Iraqis uh, about three or four, I want to say maybe four years ago, because two of the Iraqis that they brought in uh, were rolled up in a plot to commit bombings and send weaponry back to Al-Qaeda. And they had gained the system and they'd gotten in in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Yep. Uh, once that happened, they put a, a halt to the whole thing and supposedly instituted it was for six months. No Iraqis were coming in under that program because uh, they realized that they had holes in the system. And again, I mean, that's just what it's all about. I mean, this National Vetting Center is a very interesting idea. I'm going to be watching it very closely and assessing uh, how it's coming along. But we need that National Vetting Center like something awful. Oh, no. I, I mean, that, that's the thing. I, part of my idea was that we should never process anyone on our on our soil, that, you know, ultimately we should set up in Mexico through diplomatic relations, NAFTA, use our leverage and have, you know, various facilities. We'll make them really good where they can go there. And while we're processing it and investigating, you know, so that will be a safe harbor for those that need it. Um, but it won't be on the our shores where Americans will be on the hook for it, that once they get here because of the court system, which is a whole nother problem we always discuss in the show, uh, they just, they, they, they wind up getting in the country first and asking questions later. And, you know, at the end of the day, well, your, your idea is not without, without precedent. Uh, the European union has set up exactly those kind of camps and facilities in North Africa and, in Turkey and in a number of other countries, uh, just exactly like what you're talking about. And the cost, the cost of these hundred, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, you know, obviously you don't have hundreds of thousands of Middle Easterners. It's, it's smaller in number, but you know, just the Central Americans, the fiscal cost, our communities and the schools and the, the UACs, it's insane. I mean, for a fraction of that, I could set up five-star, you know, facilities and and just do it off our sh- our shores. You know, you talk about a value of asylum. We all believe in a legitimate asylum, but at the end of the day, the deeply rooted in the social compact of government is you owe protection to your people first. That must yield. You know, any other need must yield in front of that. So I think I think to me that that's a good idea because I, I just don't see any good way of doing it on our soil. Uh, you could talk about better vetting, but once they're here, we have a major problem with the judiciary that Congress really uh, doesn't, you know, hasn't shown any appetite to deal with uh, in a in a sustained way. So there's there's that issue. There, there's a lot more I want to talk to you about. I know we're we're really running late and. 
I want to bring you back again. One more thing before I let you go. I want to focus on your article at PJ Media. For our listeners, you also write at PJ Media, so you can see your archives there as well. We'll link to in show notes. Um, Suriname, random country in, in South America, few ever talk about in America, um, nestled in between Guiana and French Guiana um, in you know, uh, Northeast uh, South America, that there was an ISIS plot in Suriname to uh, kill uh, the U.S. ambassador to that country. Give us a sense of how widespread, again, that this terrorist problem in Latin America is. Well, I think, you know, it's it's fairly well documented that Hezbollah has always had, or for many years, has had an active presence uh, in throughout Latin America. I mean, they, they, the, the Iranians and their proxies are, uh, you know, prevalent in, you know, have been prevalent for many years in Venezuela and Bolivia and even Nicaragua with the Sandinista government of uh, Daniel Ortega. And uh, they're involved in, uh, it's mostly a money-making operation, you know, arms and drugs and that sort of thing coming back to the home uh, organization. But we don't really hear that much about Sunni organizations like ISIS, uh, for example. Uh, not, not that, they're, that, they're, that, that there haven't been sympathizers here and there uh, individual sympathizers. We we saw that with the Olympics um, a couple of years ago, uh, where the Brazilians actually rolled up a uh, a Sunni terror Islamic terrorist cell that was planning to do some uh, damage against the uh, Olympic uh, games. Uh, but but it's pretty rare. And so when something like that pops up, you know, I mean, I you know, people like me pay attention. Uh, especially, um, you know, as we were mentioning, they're they're not too far from the smuggling lanes right here, right to Texas. And Suriname popped on that chart uh, last year with the arrests of uh, five people. Uh, two of them are brothers who are, and now the Suriname is a is a former Dutch colony. It's about five hundred thousand uh, people there, and a fairly large Muslim indigenous Muslim uh, community there from you know, sugar plantations of old, but, um, wow. anyway, these so, two wait, brothers, wait, so the indigenous population, but also what you're describing is an interesting pipeline that, you know, the Netherlands in Europe has been overrun by, by uh, radical Islam. I mean, that we see in the news every day. So you're saying they come from the Netherlands, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's a visa free. I mean, you want to fly back and forth between, uh, the Netherlands and, uh, Suriname, you know, wow. you don't need, you know, it's just need a, the price of an air ticket to go back and forth. It's it's that kind of a relationship. It's a former, the uh, it's a former colony, so it has that relationship. Just like uh, you can, you know, fly from South Africa to Great Britain without any sort of uh, permission or visas or anything. It's visa waiver. So there's a a direct uh, route, I guess, between. Uh, Europe and South America via Suriname. And I guess I hadn't even thought of that until I saw this, this case of these brothers and they apparently were, there's early reporting. It's sketchy reporting. There's been no American reporting that I can find. It's mostly local spotty little bits and pieces of, of localized uh, online reports about 
that these brothers had plotted to kill the American ambassador or attack the embassy there. That's been disputed here and there, but it's never been disputed by the Americans. And uh, then beyond that, the brothers had uh, were operating a recruitment uh, operation for ISIS and sent at least two Surinamese to Syria to fight with ISIS. Uh, either one of those or a third was a, a woman who got caught, a Surinamese woman who got caught at the border with Turkey and Syria and then got deported back to Suriname. And so you had this sort of little cell going on in Suriname. Uh, that was very interesting because we hadn't really seen an ISIS-type uh, organized cell, and they had direct communications with ISIS in Syria, which gave, gave it a little bit more gravitas, in my view. So so that was an interesting – it's still sort of developing. I can't really tell what's going on there uh, with the trial. The brothers are on trial there, So, but 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 I haven't heard anything since May. Yeah, it's something I didn't think of until until today when you sent that article to me. And I was thinking, wow, I, I, I know even after I studied the issue, I miss Suriname. I, I know there's a lot of countries where there's problems where either, again, there's somewhat of a population that's become Islamic. Um, obviously, you got the tri-border areas uh, you know, around Argentina and, and Paraguay and, and Brazil and then Venezuela, and then you have the – governments that are very anti-American in a lot of these countries. And then this was another one that popped up. And then when you think of the Netherlands, it's almost like, you know, they could travel back and forth and there's a lot of Islamists there. Um, To me, this all, again, ties together immigration, the border, and Latin American affairs. Just from a foreign policy standpoint, you know, Every bit as much as as our focus on the Middle East since 9-11, we really should have focused a lot more on Latin America, just from from a statecraft standpoint. Yeah, I I mean, I would agree. And I I wouldn't say that there's that there's no uh, attention being paid to these issues coming from Homeland Security uh, from that world. I know that there is some. Uh, I would argue also that there's maybe never enough. And uh, we all know that media reporting drives priorities. And if there's simply no media reporting and nobody's thinking about it, it's not on, on the radar, then you know priorities don't get driven. Because what, what bothers me is when you contrast Latin America to the Middle East, and look, we have to make the right to policy choices everywhere around the globe, but you know, there's a lot of parts of the Middle East that are just dumpster fires. There's nothing you can do. Uh, it's one Islamic faction <laughs> versus another. There's no play to be made. It is what it is. And, you know, at the end of the day, they can't come here unless, A, we bring them through the front door through visas or they come through the border. And that's fundamentally a Latin American problem that there's such an established modus operandi to bring them in with countries that are now overrun by Islamists there. Uh, I should say overrun, but I mean they have elements there and and, and governments that are friendly to uh, Hezbollah Tehran. And to me, we need to pay a lot more attention to a carrot and stick approach with governments in Latin America to get our allies. You know, in Colombia, the new guy in, in Argentina is a good guy um, to work with us and kind of isolate the bad actors. Uh, otherwise, I mean, because I, I thought the government in Suriname was kind of corrupt. I mean, is that correct? Uh, yeah, they've had their issues. They definitely <laughs> have had their issues. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you you make a good point that um, you know p- part of the problem is is that you know governments in Latin America 
don't have an incentive to expend resources on our national security. They, they need to either be provided with resources to worry about our national security or, or, or the stick, carrot and kind of a stick. Uh, when it comes to, um, you know, collecting intelligence, for example, on suspicious uh, actors or, uh, you know, ca- counterintelligence uh, programming in some of the countries, you know, Ecuador or Brazil or, you know, some of those places, you know, that it has to be, they have to be made to uh, allow us in, right? Uh, because otherwise, you know, I mean, they've got their own problems, right? They're not, you know, with special interest alien traffic, for example, you know, these migrants are moving through and they're perfectly happy to uh, house, feed, and provide medical attention in Panama and Mexico because they know as soon as they let them out, they're just going to keep moving on. It's not their problem. So, we, we, I, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, more muscular diplomacy, uh, because that's what's necessary in Latin America. If we're going to have those countries, if we're going to ask those countries to worry about our national security. Yeah. I mean, those are the countries that have a land bridge ultimately to Mexico and America. And, you know, if you're concerned about every dot in uh, in the Middle East, then you should be concerned by a factor of a thousand about what goes on in Latin America. And this has long been a pet peeve of mine. You've been very generous with your time. We're we're just about out of time here. So again, people could follow you um, at Benzman Todd. We'll link to this in show notes. We'll link to your articles at PJ Media at CIS. Um, welcome out of the bunker. <laughs> Uh, you know, now Thank that you, you can talk, I'm just so glad to have another just smart, studied uh, voice um, who comes with experience to this issue, to this array of issues. Really, the linchpin of, of righting the wrongs and uh, policy since 9 11. And really looking forward to having you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me anytime. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. And let me know your thoughts about our guest, what you want me to ask him in the future, email me at dharwitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at armconservative. Um, yeah, gosh, we're so over time here, but there's a lot more going on. We're, we're going to have to meet again this week. Um, in House Judiciary Committee, there will be a bill. They are actually proposing a bill to end nationwide injunctions from the courts. That's a good thing. Uh, We're going to be covering that. Watch for my piece on immigration, discussing some of this stuff with the border surge um, later today or tomorrow. A lot lot going on. This dumb tax bill Republicans are putting out, which is meaningless without reconciliation instructions to get around the filibuster. Uh, There's there's a lot of domestic policy issues, fiscal issues at some point we're going to have to get to. And look, I mean, these guys are just pathetic. Imagine if they had a narrative like this like this show, and consistently as a party, as a movement focused on it, what would the election polling look like? But, you know, we don't have that. But, but you know, just to go back to the main point here, 17 years we're just groping in the dark. 9-11 hijackers, all of them were issued visas. All four pilots had Florida driver's licenses. We have these fit young men 
just traipsing across our border. There's this amazing, the Daily Caller did a great job. They had a surveillance camera from someone's uh, ranch in Arizona. They gave them the, the footage of it. 25 straight minutes of them flooding our country. At best, they're just very impoverished public charges that attenuate our culture, ruin our schools. But then you have the, you have the drugs and MS-13, and then at worst, the Middle Easterners and terrorism. That's another thing. The Senate is voting this week on this opioid bill. The opioid crisis is all a border problem. It's all a sanctuary problem. It's all an immigration problem. Just like 9-11 and terrorism was, it all gets back to that. You don't need anything innovative not to self-immolate. You just don't self-immolate. And speaking of self-immolating, if you're not sleeping on a purple mattress, you're a masochist. You are self-immolating. You're not getting a good night's sleep or often... You have a sore back, sore hips like I did, where my hip muscles were just uh, clamping down on my sciatic nerve. And then I got purple products. You got purple uh, pillows, mattresses, seat cushions. I'm sitting on my purple seat cushion right now. It feels like I'm sitting on air, but it's firm at the same time, soft and firm, perfect mixture. It is truly revolutionary technology. Go to purple.com, issue promo code Daniel, and get your free pillow with your purchase of a mattress. There's also other products. If you don't feel you could afford a mattress now, just try their 100-day free guarantee, free trial. Shipping is free. Returns are free. You'd be dumb not to try it for 100 days. Tell me what you think thereafter, and I think you're going to like it, and then you could keep it with a 10-year warranty. Purple mattresses, the softest, firmest, most comfortable mattresses in America. God bless you all. Speak to you later. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.